And we're live on the Commercial Real Estate Playbook. Frank, my long-lost brother, or at least it seems like that because we haven't recorded the podcast in forever. How are we doing, brother? Good, man. Good. It feels good to be back in the saddle. It's been a it's been a while. And um, I'm sorry to our you know a thousand or so people that listen to every episode. We uh, we were busy, but we're back. We're we're really back. We're back, baby. We actually were never gone. We actually have been working our butts off. Uh, and that's usually we don't record podcasts is because our business is very busy. So, uh, it's, it's been pretty crazy, but we're, we're back on the podcast train. What, uh, any, any personal revelations, any, uh, quick topics you want to hit before we get into the uh, meat and potatoes of the episode? I mean, um, I think our, our break now it's like, well, what was the break for? We were, um, we had two really, I'd say big deals for us, um, we were working on a raise, all the contract close stuff, and we just needed to focus on it. And unfortunately, um, the Florida property insurance market got us, um, and we uh, we were unable to close. We're, we were a little bummed. We had to lick some wounds. Um, we were really excited about that deal, but um, luckily we didn't. You know, we didn't have to get our butts kicked on pursuit costs or anything like that. So it could have been worse. But uh, it's tough closing deals out there. It requires your full attention and dedication, and that's the reason. So, I. The scene that pops into my head is the Boondock Saints scene when dudes describe it's like there was a firefight, mm-hmm. right? Like the uh, commercial real estate, the commercial real estate landscape right now is just uh, wild and crazy, right? For a million different reasons. Ultimately, insurance interest rates shot up faster than they ever had before. There was a bid ass spread for a while. Bid ass spread is closer now, but interest rates are high. People aren't moving as much. So it's, it's a wild time out there, but uh, let's jump into it. We got mm-hmm. five kind of overarching questions that we're going to, we're going to riff on. Um, let's do it. Question number one, what's your key to success in commercial real estate and how do you adapt to market changes? Go ahead. I think, um, I think the old adages from uh, a lot of the experienced operators are holding true, right? Like uh, be patient, maintain proper leverage or not too much leverage um, and uh, be well capitalized. I think those are, those are the things like that's, that is today's game. That is today's game. Um, I think, uh, I think now um, if you're a value add person, I think uh, it's also a time to consider how do you um, make your value proposition or differentiation greater. I think in storage, how that can apply is like, hey, um, instead of just doing operational value ads, maybe try to add a little bit more deeper value, adding square footage, development, expansion. I think, um, I don't know. I think it's a fundamentals. I'm being reminded of fundamentals right now. Low leverage, differentiate as much as you possibly can on properties and be well capitalized. I think that's the name of the game right now. I like it. We've talked about commercial real estate and find fun finish, right? So I think the the key to commercial real estate is to find great deals, to fund great deals and to finish great deals. I think the thing that I'm being taught all the time is you have to find fun and finish great deals, but it's like the ground's moving underneath you while you're trying to do it, right? It's like the market, the economy, the situations between interest rates, um, buyers, sellers, all these expectations, insurance market, you have to find fun, finished deals. And those are the fundamentals, but the environment is changing rapidly all over the place. Everyone tries to present themselves like an expert. 
but even the experts disagree on where exactly we are and where we're going. So you have to be very adaptive. You have to be very willing to change when things aren't working. You have to have quick iterations and quick feedback cycles. You have to have, uh, I think, tough conversations with partners, with investors, with vendors, because sometimes you have a discussion today and then two weeks from now, conditions have changed and you have to have a different discussion. So uh, lots of different different craziness, but um, the market uh, is producing a lot of fog right now. Yeah. Meaning, you know, you know what's going around you, going on around you in, in foggy weather. But the metaphor being, if you get, you know, you don't know exactly where you're going past the next couple steps, right? So on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, you're grinding. But where we go next month, we don't exactly know. We have to plan multiple kind of shoots because it's foggy out there. Yeah. It's, well, it's hard to, let's say you, you were, you're low, you're a really great operator, right? And your whole career, you've been doing this for 20 years and you're well capitalized, all this stuff. We're younger in our careers, but let's say you're like a rock solid titan of industry. You got this great foundation. You've been underwriting to, hey, I want to stabilize at this cap rate or I'll never deal on cost. Maybe you're LA multifamily and you're like, I stabilize at a 7.5. That's my goal. It's been that goal for as long as I've been in business. Well, then right now you're like, hey, do I change that? I think that's the big challenge for operators right now. Like we have deals right now that's coming across our desk where if I underwrite them, I'm like, we can get to an unleveraged yield on cost that last year we'd be like, man, that's really good. But everyone's moving that metric, even though it's independent of leverage. Everyone's like, well, it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, So I'm just going to wait until, so we're budging. Right. Like everyone who's like, no, that's what I underwrite to. I mean, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but we are budging. If everyone, if everyone just stayed on that thesis, they'd be raising funds right now and just be buying everything. But that's not what's happening. I spoke to a broker um yesterday talking about storage in a market that we we buy in. And he's like, dude, I think cap rates have moved 30 to 50 bips in the last five to six weeks. That's a big movement, right? That's a big movement. So it's it's weird. It's it's hard to tell if we're um being irrational right now as investors and being too patient, or if, if we're correct and all just waiting for the bottom to fall out, it's it, that's why it's hard to buy at the bottom. Like it, it really is. Um, so I'm, it's cool to experience it. I don't know what your thoughts are there. Be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. That makes for, for a great saying, but in reality, um, very difficult, right? Easier said than done. No doubt. Because it's, like the, the greedy and fearful, like fearful isn't a powerful enough word, right? It's like um, be aggressive when everyone else wants to be very, very conservative, right? Like they're, they're, you know, definitely opposing viewpoints. And I think we're in a situation right now where it, you know, a lot of revenue and storage is down. So, you know, cap rates look like they are expanding, but from a price per square foot perspective, you can you can really get deals, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look from a price per square foot compared to development costs, you can get really good deals out there. But we talk to a lot of investors and their expectations are changing, right? So it's yeah. uh, just a wild world, man. Um, you know, you expect some people to sit on the sidelines, but I think overall the majority of people are sitting on the sidelines. So this idea that be greedy when others are fearful, much easier said than done. Yeah, I agree. No doubt.
Okay. Next question. Tell us about a challenging deal and the lessons you learned from it. So let's, uh, we've spent, I don't know, the last four months working on two very specific deals and we're really excited about both of them. Both of them fell through. Um, let's just talk overarching. You go first, Frank, and then, then I'll play clean up on some of the lessons we learned from. Well, I think, um, I, I mean, listen, we, we had two deals we're really excited about in markets where I think it would be really hard for us to buy when the market was running super hot. Like in 2021, some, some larger firm would have bid 40% more than us, but we were able to get locations, good unlevered yield on cost at stabilization and good locations where you can actually get some appreciation, great opportunity for us. And we didn't close them. I think, um, I think as deal guys trying to scale our business, I think, um, I think a lesson in here is the uh, the susceptibility of having a lot of your upside predicated off interest rates or your cash flow based off interest rates. As a sponsor, right, you have your fees and you charge AUM, you charge acquisition fees, and that's how you make money in the short term. But our investors take all the cash flow and proceeds before we return capital and hit our pref, right? And right now, sponsors are having to hold on to some of that cash flow to protect against... Um, rate increases in the future. So we have these two deals and they die, right? Like, where am I going with this? I think what it's teaching me is um, it's probably going to be smart for us to diversify a little bit in terms of revenue streams over the next two years or so. I think in real estate um, and down markets, if you're a sponsor and you take on investors, you can't have all your pay be somewhat susceptible to interest rates. So you got to create some diversification. Fortunately for us, we had a deal go full exit or full cycle earlier in the year. So we got some cushion, but I think that's something we're going to end up working on. It's like, hey, during a recession, how do you buy patience? How do you buy patience? And it's cash, more and more cash, right? So I think um, that's why you see a lot of investors see Nick Huber, right? He's got like seven different businesses. You see Moses Kagan, he's got property management. He's got reconvene. Some other guys have consulting going on. I think I think right now that's a smart play. I think diversifying income streams is, is the play. I like that. Um, I agree with all of it. I think another thing that we've learned is due diligence on the front end. Both of our last two deals blew up kind of during due diligence. And it's a good thing that they did, right? Like they were both deals that we canceled the deals because we found things in due diligence that we weren't comfortable with. And so the the deals blew up. So part of it is, hey, pat us on the back because we did significant due diligence and found things we weren't comfortable with. And then I think a reinforcement of how important due diligence was, right? I think when you initially get into the the deal game, or at least let me speak for myself, like you want to create some rapport with the other parties involved, right? So, you know, um, maybe you're not asking as pointed questions as you should be. And I think after you do some deals, you learn like, ask the very difficult questions right up front, right off the bat, be confrontational if you need to, but it's always better to just get to the bottom of all the difficult stuff right off the bat. Um, because it's going to come up eventually, or if it doesn't come up, that's even worse, right? So due diligence is like, you got to kind of be uh, a hard ass and dig into that stuff right off the bat. Yeah. I think you make a lot of money in due diligence right now too. I think in a buyer's market, let's be honest, like um, sellers are on their heels if they're on the market right now. And if you start chipping away during the due due diligence process, and the more tight you are with that, um, it, it gives you leverage. Right, it straight up gives you leverage. Like now is the time to to protect yourself during due diligence for making a mistake. Right, like buyers have the advantage. Anything on the market, um, maybe means 
maybe it means they stabilized it and they're trying to cash out. But in a lot of cases, it means I gotta, I want to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I want to get out of here. I'm in lease up, or I don't want to complete my lease up, or something like that. Um, so you don't have to feel pressured and due diligence right now to close, right? Like, take your time, be patient, do the work. So um, I'm glad we did that. Like, I'm glad well, we there, did that. There was definitely like even in our LOIs, our uh, letters of intent, we used to put in there that we don't retrade. Basically, like that was part of our pitch in a seller's market. Of being like, hey, we don't retrade, right? And seemingly overnight, I would say that the environment out there is if you're not retrading, people your your investors are like, what the hell? You need to you need to get aggressive here, right? It's unfortunate, right? Because there there could be some dishonest stuff going on, and people might go into deals trying to retrade right off the bat. We're definitely trying to use um, high character throughout every transaction. But the bottom line is, as you're saying, people are chipping away at that purchase price and using due diligence of like, hey, this wasn't disclosed initially. We found this. We have to renegotiate on price. It's it's clearly gone from a seller's market to a buyer's market quickly. Yeah. It's like, I listen, I don't like retrading. I I think you go into deals with 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 the attention to close unless unless something pops up. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But to your point, the attitude of a lot of real estate investors right now is like, I'm going to weaponize due diligence, right? I'm going to erode the confidence of the broker. I'm going to erode the confidence of the seller. And um, LPs too. We've had LPs, particularly the ones that take up larger positions in a deal, be like, hey, have you thought about doing this? Like, hey, the market's kind of moved during this contract process. You probably, you could probably go hit them up right now. And you know, that's an ethical question just as much as it is a financial question. So it's it's murky out there. I'm just going to just calling that out. That's that's definitely a thing. It's happening. For sure. Next question. How do you manage risk in real estate? And how would you advise other real estate entrepreneurs to manage risk? I think um I think risk management in real estate is almost like this all-encompassing global cash flow equation, right? It's like your personal life, your your assets, like it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up um, and all under consideration for lenders too, just the ability to take on loans, right? So I think um, like live within your means, you know, have positive cash flow on the on the home front where you live um, and, and don't over lever, right? Don't over lever. If you have equity and properties and you have some cash flow, you always have levers to pull, things you can do, stuff you can move. Um, that's really it. I think... Uh, I think another thing that um in hindsight I think I think evaluating price per square foot is good. Um a lot of people don't like that metric, but I do think it provides good historical context because if you see if you pull the CoStar report and you're like, "Hey, how is price per square foot for this particular asset class in this market moved up and down over time?" It's it gives you a snapshot of valuations independent of rental rates and interest rates. Right? So it's not like an all BN end all solution. Like I don't think you should submit offers strictly off of price per square foot. Like revenue matters, but it does give you context. Like oh, this like STRs are a great example. You know the Gatlinburg, Tennessee house price per square foot probably went up 100 percent in two years from 2020 to 2022. But like why? Right. Well, it's because the STR market got super hot because domestic travel was the thing because you couldn't travel to Paris, London, wherever. Right. So it, it skyrockets that value. If you if you see that, you're like oh. I can mitigate some risk here by just adding that context. I think that is something um, that newer real estate investors should pay attention to. 
I like it. I I think about risk. There's clearly the debt question. We all hear the stats thrown around 2008, 2009, like the number one driver of foreclosures or people turning their keys over was because of rate resets for debt, right? It's like most of those uh, commercial real estate properties were still performing, but the debt was due. So I think debt is a big part of the equation. But not, not resets, that's mostly balloons. Resets can trigger other stuff. Um, but balloons was the, I think was the big one, right? I, I was kind of using that uh, interchangeably. Uh, right. Agree though, right? Yeah. Um, reset to hopefully something. <laughs> if it's resetting to nothing, uh, that's clearly a balloon, right? Um, but I, I think the one thing Frank and I thought thought a lot about is this idea of like sometimes, or maybe when we first got started, we looked at the product we were offering to investors as a very unique thing. And I think now we try to look at it as like, what are the what's the product the REITs are offering? Meaning, you know, what are people anticipating for a return from a publicly traded REIT? And then they also have um, liquidity options, short-term liquidity options with those REITs, right? And then you go, okay, what about the bigger real estate private equity funds that don't offer liquidity, right? But they offer, you know, indexing into multiple funds. What kind of return are they offering, right? And then at some point you get to the product we are offering to investors and you say, "Are is the return that we are offering justifiable, right? Is that justifiable given the risk profiles of our deals in the fact that our deals are generally uh, illiquid in the short term? And ultimately we have to make sure that we feel really good about the risk adjusted return of the deals that we are bringing to market. And you can't perfectly quantify it, but you have to try to quantify it and then try to qualify it, right? In both, you know, analytical and subjective means to go, we can stand behind this investment. It fits in the marketplace. We understand the type of investment that we're offering to investors. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think that goes back to um, in the absence of market beta, and with rents in in a lot of asset classes being flat and some under some pressure, you know, rents and um, occupancies are under a little pressure in a couple different asset classes. It's like, um, well, how do you justify going to you and not Blackstone, right? Because Blackstone's got so much mass, like any beta, they capture a lot of beta when there's beta, but they have some protection too, like just because of how big they are, diversified it is. So if you're going to be a, you know, a singular asset syndicator, it's like, well, how do you how do you justify the return? Well, on the finished side of your business, like add add a ton of value, or on the fine side, it's like you find great deals, you find great deals, you finish great deals. Like you got to be good at all three in today's environment to get a deal across the finish line. I think that's that's a fact. Yes, you have to feel like you're paying below market on the entrance, right? Like the investors are going to have that expectation. Dude, and yesterday I think- I'm going to cut you off. Yesterday I found an off market lead for like thirty bucks a square foot. Um, it's a little bit of a different asset. It's not a storage asset, but like way under replacement cost. The previous rents when it was operational, you know, it's like an 11 cap and you're like, I don't know, man, (laughs) you know, what do we do with this thing? Like, dude, two years ago, the sentiment amongst investors is like, like it would have been gobbled up by now, you know, like anyone who hit this guy up on direct to seller, like it would be gone, but now it's still sitting there. And I'm like, how, you know? But even you were like, well, we got to make sure of this, we got to dot this I, cross this T. Going back to, you know, 
it's hard to be greedy when others are fearful because you know we're affected by social media and everything we see in the news too. It's not like we're impervious to it. Um, so it's a challenge to like keep keep the offense on to a certain extent. You got to keep it going. It is right. And then your comment on the last answer, like, hey, trying a business that's independent of interest rates, but also having an appreciation that interest rates run our entire effing economy, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's ridiculous. And it's it's hard to appreciate until you're like in it, right? But so to give context to this, because you know, I, I think it's a good point, right? Let's let's call it a 20,000 square foot industrial building, um, you know, in a more rural area, okay? We would have looked at that two years ago and said, how many businesses are growing? What is the market vacancy? Um, right. Like if this market growth continues, like we're going to be able to put someone in, in there. And even if we give them a great deal, it's going to, it's going to be awesome. Right now with interest rates real high, you're like, someone would have to add 20,000 square feet of warehouse space to their company right now. And you go, interest rates are going to drive a lot of that. How many businesses are going to be expanding right now? Right. Like, uh, cause we know those business owners out there reading the wall street journal too. Right. So it's, yeah, man, it's it's tough. All right, next question. Okay, uh, what emerging trends will impact the industry, and how do you prepare for them? Commercial real estate as a whole. Sure. You emerging trends. Okay, um, I think the emerging trends will continue to see. Um, one is, I think, the free market in partnership with technology will continue to make pricing more efficient, okay? Um, You think about how Zillow and the MLS has made home buying prices more efficient. I think we're going to continue to see that in commercial assets is, you know, CoStar and uh, these, you know, Crexy public record polls. I think pricing is going to continue to get more efficient as you go down the value chain uh, to smaller properties. Um, so that's one thing. How do you prepare for it? Um, or how can you take advantage of it? Yeah, I have to understand that this idea of like stealing a property from a seller uh, is is going to be more and more difficult to do. So to get a deal on the front end, you're going to have to have some compelling reason to get that deal. Like, hey, a surety of close, um, big earnest money deposit, a track record of success. You're going to have to have a good compelling reason on the front end to get a good deal. Another trend I think we'll see, and we're starting to think through it on our business, is the REITs are going to continue moving down market. So the big time private equity is going to continue to move down market. People like our business are continuing to get squeezed down market, right? So what does that mean? It's difficult to do bigger deals, but that also means that this idea of a roll-up, whether it's private equity or in real estate, the idea of a roll-up isn't going anywhere. So if you can collect smaller assets, put them together in a portfolio, I think there's prime opportunities to exit to bigger private equity or rates. And how are how are we thinking through that? We've historically bought deals all across the Southeast, as far away as is Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas. And we're trying to become more geographically focused, knowing that an exit 
uh, roll up is very likely, right? So those are two two big things that I think are affecting our industry and kind of how we can think through them and hopefully use them to our advantage. Yeah, I think um, I agree with what you said. I think another dynamic that is going to exist, and this will be bad in some cases um, for for some people, is we have this. Dy- there's a lot of new construction that's hit the market in, in most asset classes: industrial, multifamily, storage, whatever. Um, so you have like Class A or you know nice Class B products coming online, but because they're under pressure with balloons, I think what's going to end up happening is people going to be trying to get to occupancy higher. They're going to drop rents on those products. So I think we're going to start to see rents, particularly in multifamily, get really close together with like new Class A and like Class B type stuff, which will eventually impact Class B rents as well, right? So it'll because those people will move out and they'll they'll change it to the nicer stuff, and eventually those rents will recover. I think. Um, how do you hedge against that, right? Like, because this will happen in a lot of recessions. Like, you know, people got to get out from under these properties. They got to stabilize. I think uh, population growth, man. <laughs> like, you like in the long term, how do you protect against that? Put your properties under or on top of good dirt. Good dirt solves this problem. I feel like if you have new supply coming online in an area with declining population, like upstate New York, you know, some parts of Michigan where you're from, like. That new construction supply dynamic, you know, class A to B, I, I think that's a little sketchy. I'd be a little worried about that. I think um, that's why we like the Sun Belt, um, is because it's it's a little stronger in terms of demographics. So I think that's going to be really really important. Demographic growth is is going to tell a lot of stories in the next two years. There's this fictional story about the real estate investor or the you know VP of acquisitions that uh, you know one VP of acquisitions was like. We're buying real estate only in DFW, right? And then another one that was like, we're going to find tertiary properties spread out across the country, right? And then both of their um, both their portfolios go to zero or lose half the value, right? But which one looks more like an idiot, right? The guy who lost half of his <laughs> value in DFW, people people are like, dang, that sucks, right? Like, but it's the market's fault. We'll give you another job. The guy who had tertiary properties spread across the United States that lost half his value. They're looking at that guy like he's an idiot, right? So how does that influence us, right? Well, we have to make sure we buy good dirt, right? And I, I like all our portfolio. I like every, every place we're in. But as we're looking at opportunities, we're going like, hey, is this good dirt? And I think one simple way to answer that question is like, hey, if this value goes down here, is that going to be the consensus or are people going to be like, wow, I can't believe that's going down. That is definitely, you know, larger market trends at play. And I, I think it's a good little uh, litmus test to think through. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. Um, we're going to end with a work-life balance question, but before we go there, what's your prediction, man? Like give me a macroeconomic prediction with both magnitude and timeline. Um, I think, uh, I think things are a little dicier out there than um, the mainstream media reports in terms of commercial real estate. I went to a happy hour last night and everyone there was like, oh man, everything's, it was very rosy, right? But I was like, I don't know, like the the amount of loans in commercial real estate that are ballooning next year that are going to need some type of servicing is is a high number. It's really high. There's The jobs reports are really mixed. Like we're adding a lot of lower paying, like secondary type jobs and we're losing you know, the non-farm good jobs. Um, I think unemployment actually came in today um, 1, 1.1% higher than expected. So see the markets reacting to that. See how treasuries respond to that. I'm going to look after this. Um, I think 
I think um, we're going to see a little bit of pain, and I think we're going to end up having to drop rates in 2024. I know that most people are predicting that we're going to drop rates in 2024, but I feel like there's going to be a little bit of like, hey, if you don't do it, like it's going to get kind of bad. I think that's going to start creeping its head the next three to six months, just with all the maturities coming due. Um, and then once you start seeing bigger banks have exposure to that, there's going to be even more pressure um, to drop rates. I think my big concern is if we drop rates at all, that, you know, inflation comes back and rears its head. That's that's unfortunately the game that our government's playing right now. Um, so I appreciate that. But I feel like if we don't, um, you know, especially in the multifamily side, like the bigger stuff, it's uh, I think there could be some blood in the water. I tend to agree. I think hopefully rates are as high as they're going to go. Hopefully they start to drop next year. I, I tend to think we're going to, we're going to limp through fourth and first quarter. And then we'll start seeing some drops second quarter the economy. will start improving uh, 2024. I think there'll be more deals done than 2023. Um, but it's also not going to be super rosy and we're going to have to dig our way out of it. I think the scary part to for me is if something bad in the world happens, we're susceptible Right. So if we see some type of black swan event sometime in the next six to 12 months, I think the severe, the, like the magnitude of the recession and therefore the length of this recession could increase dramatically. Right. So my, like looking at the uh, predicted rate curves, feel okay. I feel like that's somewhat predictor of where our economy is going to go. But at the same time, Middle East. Is is crazy right now. Ukraine's still going on. There's all kinds of things out there that uh, could spark at any time. I think that's what I'm concerned about: is our economy is weaker, and if we have some black swan global event, it could be much worse. Yeah, it, it is trying times. I think you know the the real message, man, is and this is important for us to remember too: is um, if you're if you do what we do for a living and you just read the news and focus on outputs. Right now, like how many deals you close, how you did this, like it's going to be a tough way to live. So, like, it's just because no one's selling anything, the days of like making it rain in 2021 are, are on pause. Um, it's like, what are your inputs, man? Like, show up to work every day, try to do the best you can and block and tackle. Like, that. that's the way to live right now. It's like, hey, what's our long term goal? And just march to that drum because the, the number of distractions is um, in my professional career, I would say it's probably at an all time high. So, I have to remind myself, like, hey, man, like, show up, get to your desk exercise, whatever, do your work. Like just, just do the thing. I like it. Okay. Last question. Work-life balance as an entrepreneur, as a commercial real estate professional in a trying time, how do you maintain work-life balance, Frank? Um, I think having a good spouse is part of it. My wife is, is great. Super supportive. I love my wife. Um, you do it. You do a good job of it. You say it all the time, go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nick Huber says touch grass. Like, just get outside. Get outside at least once a day um, for twenty to thirty minutes. I think a podcast is my usual go-to. Um, otherwise, man, I'm working. I've been working a lot this this summer, so I feel like my work-life balance uh, answer is not great because I've honestly been working a ton. I had what I thought was kind of a witty comment the other day. Someone was asking me how much I've been playing golf. And I was like, not at all, man. I was like, when interest rates shot up, I was like, everyone might as well go on vacation because no deals are going to get done. Right. So played, played golf. This summer was good playing golf. Uh, and 
then I came to the realization like, oh shit, this is just our new normal. <laughs> like we, you know, you can't just sit on the sideline forever. Eventually we got to figure out how to make money in this crazy environment. Right. So uh, yeah, both of us have been grinding hard, stressful time. I think stressful, you lose deals. It's stressful. Um, things come out in due diligence. It's stressful. Communicating with investors can be stressful. Trying to figure out where our next deals are going to come from can, can be stressful. I think things that ground me, uh, family, like you said, um, I coach my kids in flag football, uh, which is a, a huge joy for me. Not only coach my own kids, but coaching other kids. Um, you coach coach kids in some sport, like they don't care if your deal blow blew up. They don't care. You know, you could lose a $10 million deal or gain a $10 million deal. They just want to play sharks and minnows at the end of practice. Right. Yeah, right. So I think that's, that's a great grounder. Um, one thing I always say about wellness that I, I feel is as strong as anything is I try to get eight hours of sleep every night and I try to work out every day. If I get eight hours of sleep every night and I work every day, I'm pretty good at regulating that work-life balance and being in a good, good spot. If I'm not working out or I'm not getting enough sleep, I can, I can start getting burnout. But if I do those kind of fundamental things, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Well said. I agree. Okay. Good stuff, man. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Sorry for the, uh, hiatus on the podcast. Um, maybe we get back to once a week. Maybe we don't. Um, uh, but thanks for listening. We appreciate you. Frank, take us away. Hey, thanks everybody for listening on our first week back and we'll see you like Plum said next week or the week after. Thanks everybody. Peace.